I always say if cybersecurity was just a technology problem, then we could have figured it out 20 years ago. But we haven't figured it out. It's just kept getting worse. And I think that's because it's not just a technology problem. It's a board leadership problem. It's a resource problem. It's an education problem. It's a culture problem. It's a policy problem. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon. Without further ado, here's today's episode. On today's episode of Founder Real Talk, I'm excited to welcome my good friend, Nicole Pearl-Roth, to the show. Nicole spent more than a decade as the lead cybersecurity, digital espionage, and sabotage reporter at the New York Times where she reported on topics such as the Russian hacks of nuclear plants, airports, elections, and petrochemical plants, North Korea's cyber attack against the movie studios, banks, and hospitals, and Iranian attacks on oil companies, banks, critical infrastructure, and presidential campaigns. Nicole is also the best-selling author of the 2021 book, This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends, a groundbreaking and in-depth exploration of global cyber arms race. And she's now also an advisor to the Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. Um, Having left the New York Times, Nicole's now in the early days of building her new early stage venture fund, Silver Buckshot Ventures, which she describes as a mission fund backing next generation cybersecurity startups that together take out every tool in an attacker's arsenal. That sounds pretty cool. I'm really excited to have Nicole on today to discuss her amazing background, her book, and where she's going to take Silver Buckshot. Nicole, welcome to Founder Real Talk. Thanks so much for having me, Glenn. Great to be here. Awesome. So I wanted to start by asking if you could take us back to your early days. How did you end up on the cybersecurity beat? And I know in the book, you talk about getting pulled literally into the closet to evaluate the Edward Snowden material. And really just curious what that was like. I mean, it must have been absolutely wild. So maybe you could help us understand how you got into this crazy world. Yeah, I always say I did not choose cybersecurity. Cybersecurity chose me. <laughs> I was living the life at uh, Forbes magazine. I had Unfortunately, I apologize to every VC who's listening, but I had unfortunately resurrected the Midas list at Forbes magazine. And I had been doing some cover stories for the magazine about venture capitalists like Jim Breyer at the time, who'd invested early in Facebook and Peter Thiel. And the Times caught notice. And so they threw my my name in the bucket as they were thinking of expanding their enterprise technology coverage. And so they were looking for a cybersecurity reporter. And I got a call from the New York Times tech editor at the time, great guy named Damon Darlin. And he said, we're looking at you for this job, uh, but we're not sure you are going to necessarily want it. I said, well, you're the New York Times. How bad could it be? I'll probably take whatever it is. And he said, it's cybersecurity. And I remember just trying my hardest not to groan thinking cybersecurity was very technical, intimidating. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to admit that at that point, I'd gone out of my way to learn as little about cybersecurity as possible because it is a little bit scary. And there were a number of people I thought covered cybersecurity quite well 
that the time should definitely put higher on its list. So I told myself, I'll go interview for this job. I was living in San Francisco. I'll fly out to Manhattan. I'll tell my grandkids one day I was invited into the Times building. And I'll use it as an opportunity to basically interview the interviewers. Because when they sent me the list of people who were going to interview me, it was everyone from Sam Sifton, who'd been the food critic, Mm. to the national editor, and everything in between. So I went out there and it was 13 interviews over the course of two days. And I brought with me this little list of everyone I thought covered cybersecurity quite well. And yeah, I started asking people like Sam, you know, oh, I see, you know, you wrote about this restaurant. What's the number one restaurant in New York you won't write about because it's so good. You don't want people to know about it. And what's your exercise routine and all of these things. And oh, by the way, you don't want me for this job. Here's the pe- here are the people you should really be interviewing for your cybersecurity opening. And at the end of the two days, an editor kind of pulled me aside and said, Nicole, I don't know if anyone has mentioned this to you yet, but we've actually interviewed everyone on your list. We've we've (laughs) brought them here to interview them. And and we had no idea what they were talking about. We couldn't understand a single thing that they were saying. And congrats, you're hired. Actually, we think you're a great journalist because you were able to out all of these things, like what the food critic's favorite restaurant is and that kind of thing. So I took a big swig of some like um, two buck chuck wine in a, in a brown bag. And I said, okay, I'm the New York Times cybersecurity journalist. And I think at that point, sort of long story short, I think they thought I would cover it uh, as a business, as a business topic. You know, who is McAfee going to acquire this month, hmm. et cetera. And, and very quickly, it became clear that that was probably the least interesting thing that was happening in cybersecurity. You know, Everyone was getting breached. Most companies weren't disclosing it, nor did they really have to. There was no law requiring that they disclose these breaches unless it touched uh, customers' personal identifiable information. And a lot of this was happening at the hands of China, who were who were looking for our IP, our intellectual property. And new players were coming on the scene, you know, Russia was just starting to probe our oil and gas companies. We were seeing sort of retribution come for for, for Stuxnet, the joint U.S.-Israeli operation on Iran's nuclear plant. Uh, We were seeing Iran, really hackers from Iran, start conducting some pretty, pretty unsophisticated but successful attacks on interesting targets like Saudi Aramco. And next thing I knew, I really wasn't the New York Times cybersecurity journalist anymore. I was, as you said in the intro, the New York Times digital espionage and digital sabotage reporter, because Mm. that is all I ended up covering for the next 10 years. And, uh, you know, one thing that I don't think anyone expected was Snowden, was that Snowden would, would dump tens of thousands, possibly more. We only got our hands on one, one tranche of documents at the New York Times, of, of NSA secrets. And I was pulled into that project to write one story and one story alone. And that was because there was an agreement that had been set up between the Guardian, who had the full uh, stash of documents, because that's where Glenn Greenwald was working at the time, and the New York Times. And there's a great backstory there, which we probably don't have time to cover. But essentially, I learned a lot about the difference between US and UK press freedoms. It turns mm. out that uh, we are significantly more free in terms of what we can do here uh, than what what British journalists can do. And the GCHQ, which is the NSA's British equivalent, had come to the Guardian's headquarters and demanded that they destroy their tranche of the Snowden documents. 
and uh, actually looked over their shoulders as they took these whirring blades to their hard drive uh, wow. of Snowden documents. But what the Guardian didn't tell them at the time is that someone had smuggled a copy of the hard drive to the New York Times headquarters, where we had the sort of legal and U.S. press freedom protections that the Guardian did not. And so as a, as a I think it was a, a deal to get the password to this hard drive, we had to agree that we would only write certain stories off the documents. And one of them was, how far has the NSA come in cracking encryption? And I was stuck on that story. And, and it really meant we had to work in a closet mm-hmm. at the New York Times. One of the stipulations Snowden has had was that these hard drives, these documents uh, be stored in windowless rooms because according to Snowden, foreign governments somewhere could shoot lasers at windows and hear everything we were talking about. Well, the New York Times headquarters, some of you will will know this, was designed by Renzo Piano, the architect, as a model for full transparency. So the whole building is floor-to-ceiling glass, except for bathrooms and Arthur Sulzberger, the Times storage closet. So we turned Arthur's closet into a makeshift skiff. I was in there with, with a colleague of mine, Scott Shane, who was really a veteran national security reporter with Re- Rebecca Corbett, who later became famous for, for the uh, editing the Harvey Weinstein series, mm-hmm. and then a couple of reporters from The Guardian and ProPublica. And we weren't allowed to bring our, doc- our devices sorry, into this closet. And every day we just had to go through essentially these really vague, acronym-heavy PowerPoint slides every day to see you know, to come up kind of with a key of which acronym referred to which program. That alone took a month and a half or so. And then we had to figure out, okay, how how many of these are just claims you would make in a PowerPoint presentation versus backed up by other documents that might suggest that that the NSA has actually uh, cracked or circumvented encryption. So it took many, many months. (laughs) And we eventually got a story and later that really informed the origin of the story of, of deciding to write my book. Yeah. That, well, amazing. And I wanted to and highly recommend your book, by the way, to anybody listening. It's an incredible, Thank incredible you. tome. And I'm curious, like, you know, obviously you were very busy day to day with the, the work you were doing at the New York Times. And in 2021, you released this book. This is how they tell me the world ends, which is a dystopian title, if I've ever heard one, what compelled you to write the book? And I know you you said you've worked on it for a long time. So kind of why did you decide to write it? How did it come together? And, you know, we'd love to hear just a little bit about what it was like to research the zero day market, which is really where you focused and what the process was like to write this book. Well, it was a couple of things, you know, one was I was covering a lot of of the the breaches, at least, that appear in the book in much greater detail on the front pages of the New York Times. And and to the Times' great credit, they were giving me the space and the front page space to tell those stories. But even then, you would have had to be the most religious New York Times reader to follow what was happening, because these attacks were coming from so many different directions, using increasingly sophisticated techniques and they were happening simultaneously at a high volume and frequency that you really 
I always say the Times needed 12 people on this beat. You know, you could have someone covering Chinese cyber espionage and IP theft, someone covering what Russia was doing, making inroads into our critical infrastructure, what the NSA was doing and cyber command, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this was not a, you know, and it's a very technical subject. And mm-hmm. I, I knew most Americans, at least, probably felt like I did before I, I got thrown into the deep end here, that they don't, they, it's really technical, it's an intimidating subject, maybe they didn't want to know. So I knew it was going to take a book or a narrative or someone like me to come, you know, a layperson essentially, to come in and hold your hand and walk you into this world with a narrative and and hopefully a suspenseful one that could keep people's attention for people to really understand what was going on. So that was number one. Number two was, I'm a woman, okay? So I don't give myself enough credit, but I will say, after I started covering these stories at the New York Times, every mainstream publication started hiring people to compete with me Mm. (laughs) on this beat. And so they were hiring a lot of reporters that would come in. And six months later, I would see that this person had sold a book and that they would be writing a book. And so I kept having to have these pep talks with myself, like, Nicole, you've been now covering this for years. Why don't you write a book? But the idea of coming home from my day job at night, which was already exhausting and so demanding, and then gathering the energy to then put together this book just sounded impossible. But at a certain point, I felt like I had no choice. You know, everyone was going to write my book for me unless I did it. So I, I finally sold the book. And then the other thing was what, where to focus. And I started with the zero day market because to me, it was like catnip for someone who is a journalist. It was, you know, for those who don't know, a zero day is a vulnerability in software that hackers can exploit uh, without the, the software manufacturer knowing about it or without the target knowing about it. And governments were buying these zero days from hackers and they were telling hackers, you know, we'll pay millions of dollars in some cases, just depending on the software that was affected, so long as you keep your mouth shut. And this market was getting more sophisticated to the point where hackers weren't just selling directly to government agencies, they were selling through brokers. And even though the brokers said that they would only sell to certain US, Five Eyes, European agencies, we were starting to see these zero days fall into the hands of countries that we might consider our allies, but you know have a different idea of what human rights look like, what press mm-hmm. freedom looks like. And it was clear to me that this was a market that was just operating in a black box somewhere and by design. And it was incredibly inefficient. There were serious moral hazards baked in. And there was a serious security dilemma baked in because, sure, you know, 20, 30 years ago, maybe we were all using slightly different versions of the same software and hardware. But for the most part, now we're all using the same software and hardware. We're all using iPhones and Android phones and Siemens industrial software and Schneider Electric in our our manufacturing plants and, and pipelines, et cetera. So when the U.S. government, for instance, purchases or acquires a zero day in Schneider Electric software, which touches the power grid, how long before another government 
finds that same hole and exploits it on us. So I was really just fascinated by this. I was also just fascinated by this general idea that, wait a minute, wait a minute. And maybe this is where fresh eyes help in these spaces. Just uh, hold on. You know, (laughs) we pay taxes to the government so the government keeps us safe. But in this one space, in the digital space, the government's leaving us more vulnerable so that they can preserve their espionage or surveillance or counterintelligence operation over there. That might make sense for a while, but for how much longer will that make sense now that our enemies are really wakening to the potential of these tools for espionage and sabotage? So that became the starting point for the book. But then these calamitous (laughs) events would happen like the NSA's stockpile of zero days was hacked and dumped online by a group that called itself the shadow brokers or an individual. And we still don't know who they are. And Russia picked them up and North Korea picked them up. And at one point, you know, this was always a market that the U.S. government never spoke about. I always say it was like Fight Club. The first rule of the market is nobody talks about the zero day market. And the second rule is nobody talks about the zero day market. But You'll remember there was that famous case where the FBI sued Apple to try and force Apple to create a backdoor into the iPhone or into its iOS software for the FBI to get into the phone of one of the shooters in the San Bernardino terrorist attack. And eventually, with enough pushback from Apple, the FBI and the DOJ said, never mind, we actually paid a hacker to get into the phone. We don't need Apple's help anymore. That was the first time the U.S. government even admitted publicly that they ever played in this market. So there were a number of just milestone events that happened along the way where I kept having to call my publisher and say, I need another six months. (laughs) I need another three months. And soon it was, I think it finally took me seven years to put this thing together. Wow. You mentioned, you referenced Stuxnet earlier, and I'm thinking, to me, that was a, a very interesting situation. Because I, at least to my knowledge, is really the first known attack on critical infrastructure. In this case, the Iran's nuclear facility. And although the U.S. and Israel have never admitted such, I think that the, the evidence points pretty pretty strongly to a, a very effective Stuxnet attack that set Iran's nuclear program back many many years as a result. And then since then, we've had things like maybe less well-known, but there was an attack on a water treatment facility in Florida that I think you've reported on. The Colonial Gas Pipeline got a lot of press when that was, there were problems there. Are we in a new era now in critical infrastructure where we're going to see more and more of these hacks? Who Who's really trafficking in these? And, you know, can we put the genie back in the bottle or or is this the new world order? Well, one coda here is that just this morning, there was a little article in CyberScoop that said that perhaps the Oldsmar water treatment plant hack wasn't a hack, that perhaps it was an employee who wandered down the wrong hallway. So I have lots of questions (laughs) because they came out very publicly as soon as they noticed that breach and and said it was an outside hacker. So we'll see. You know, maybe we'll find out that wasn't a hack. But I think... It does point to the vulnerability of these systems. And in that regard, it probably did us a favor. And there have been very real attempts to infiltrate water treatment systems in Israel. Israel has accused Iran of of trying to do this. And I think just today I saw a report that 
Israel's irrigation systems in the Jordan Valley had been hit by hacktivists. Mm. So water to me is always just the scariest target because I always call it the silent killer. You know, if someone yeah. was going to hack your water treatment plant and contaminate the water, in most cases, you wouldn't know until it hit a large population uh, because rarely do you even have an IT guy on staff at these treatment facilities. It's usually two plumbers and that's it. But getting back to your question, you know, Stuxnet, it was a bloody masterpiece, you know, and I really enjoyed researching that piece of history, which it's weird to say history because it wasn't that long ago. But when you think back, you know, where were we between 2006 and around 2009, which is when we think uh, Stuxnet was first deployed at, at Iran's Natanz nuclear facility, we were embroiled in two wars in the Middle East, in Iraq and Afghanistan. We were seeing, you know, more American soldiers come home and in caskets than ever before. And we were getting pressure from Israel to hand over our bunker buster bombs, which is what Israel felt they needed to take out Natanz because it's buried under so much concrete. And every simulation that the Pentagon did at the time showed that if we were even to just hand over these weapons and look the other way, we would get dragged into a war with Iran, whether we, we wanted to or not. And there was just no political appetite for it. So George W. Bush famously said, get me a third option. And that third option became Stuxnet. It became code that targeted the rotors that spun up the centrifuges, that mm -hmm. spun up the uranium that Iran needed for its nuclear weapons program. And in many ways, I think it was the, the digital version of the Manhattan Project, mm -hmm. only in reverse, because it was a counter-nuclear proliferation effort. And at the end of the day, it was very successful. You know, it, it walked back Iran's nuclear ambitions, I think, five years by some estimates. It, it cut a, about a fifth of their uranium supply. It might have arguably sown enough doubt to get Iran to the negotiating table when it came time to talk about a nuclear deal. And it kept Israeli jets on the ground and us out of a third war in the Middle East. So from that perspective, it was a bloody masterpiece. The problem is, is that it got out. And when it got out, it zoomed around the world and it infected hundreds of thousands of computer systems all over the world, including Chevron's. Now, it didn't do any harm because it was clear that whoever worked on this thing um, had some general counsel standing over the programmer's shoulder saying, hey, this better only work on the exact configuration of right. rotors and centrifuges at Natanz and nothing else. So when it zoomed around the world, it would, in the words of one researcher, it, it was like a, a mouse that would sniff but wouldn't eat. You know, it's just, it, it, but it still showed the world what was possible. And it set new new rules of the game, which is as long as you use code, you can break into a foreign nation's most critical infrastructure, their nuclear enrichment plant, and you can sabotage things at the other end and you might get away with it so long as you do so with code. So it really opened up Pandora's box. And since then, we've seen Iran hack uh, Saudi Aramco. We've seen Russia hack Ukraine's power grid. We've seen countries like China infect our pipeline networks. That was a, an operation that was declassified just over a year ago by the U.S. government that China had embedded itself in our pipelines, not for intellectual property theft, but potentially for sabotage if they needed it, if geopolitical tensions dictated so. So 
in many ways, we're all actually just sitting. And, and I, to be fair, by the way, I've covered attacks by the U.S. government on Russia's grid uh, with my former colleague, David Sanger. So in many ways, we're now entering an era where we're all sitting in each other's critical infrastructure with guns to each other's heads, waiting for the moment that one country might determine it has nothing left to lose but to pull the trigger. Mm-hmm. And that is a pretty precarious place to be. You know, I call it mutually assured digital destruction. Mm. But there's some interesting questions to be asked about whether it's held Russia back right now on retaliating against the U.S. government or the or Western Europe or or Five Eyes for our support for Ukraine in the Russia Ukraine situation. So. You'd have to be a fly on Putin's wall to know the answer to that. But it's an interesting question. Very cool. So at some point, you, as I alluded earlier, you, you decided to kind of hang up your spurs and get out of the journalism game. Hopefully, you'll write another book someday because I, I'm sure I'm not the only one who would, would uh, rush to read it. But you've kind of taken on new roles and responsibilities, new opportunities within this realm. And I'd love to talk a little bit about a few of them. One is your work with CISA. So this is, maybe tell us a little bit about it. What is it? Why did you decide to join it? Why do you think you were asked to join it? Who who else do you work with? And what what's the nature of the work? So, you know, the learning curve for me at the New York Times was obviously very steep in the beginning. And after 10 years, it really flattened out. It was sort of a, a new day, new attack, usually the same group of actors or suspects, maybe a slightly modified technique. Occasionally you'd have events like solar winds where someone would just up up the game completely with something like a supply chain attack. Uh, we were seeing more zero days. And so I could have stayed and I could have covered that. But what I could see was that actually my book had had far greater impact than my coverage at the New York Times in some ways. At least there was clearly kind of an education gap Mm. for everyday people, but but also policymakers and also boards. And so I was getting invited to speak to uh, congressional staff, to boards, to sort of these board education networks. And a lot of that, the Times is pretty careful about what you can do, what you can't do as a Times journalist. You know, they have really strict ethics rules, particularly around speaking, that I'm grateful for because you really do need to maintain your objectivity to to do your job well. But at a certain point, I was seeing that perhaps I was in a role of diminishing returns and perhaps I could do more uh, outside the Times than I could do inside the Times. And maybe it was just time for someone younger and hungrier to take over my, my job. So what forced this issue was Jen Easterly, who's the director at CISA, calling me and asking me to join this advisory committee. It's essentially like an advisory board. And I think they wanted to have a journalist on that board. I don't think they mm-hmm. realize that once you're a journalist that's on an advisory board for the federal government, you stop being a journalist. Yep. <laughs> you just you can't be inside the tent and covering some the, the, that agency from the outside with any semblance of objectivity. So it was a hard decision, but I decided it was the right one. You know, at the end of my book, I have a prologue where I made all sorts of suggestions about 
how we could improve this thing. Cause I think I, I felt like you'd be a charlatan to just write about the problem and not offer up your own ideas. And for me, that was, that was intimidating because I'm not an engineer. So much of, you know, some of my ideas were technical, but a lot of them were not. And so Jen said, I really appreciated your ideas. And I do think we need to rebalance the over tilt on cyber offense and figure out cyber defense once and for all. And I, and I want you to be part of this committee. So I said, yes. And it's an amazing group of people. It was 23 people, but we just added a couple of really amazing new members like Chris Inglis, who just left his position as the White House uh, National Cyber Director. In the advisory committee, it's it's people like um, the CISOs, the, the chief information security officers at Apple, and and Johnson and Johnson, and and Microsoft, and Amazon. But it's also uh, Steve Adler, who just left his role as the the mayor of Austin. You know, it's people who are representing state and local governments. It's uh, thought leaders in the space like Bobby Chesney and and Alex Stamos and. Each of us brings, you know, a, a wealth, a very different experience in cyber mm-hmm. to the table, but also all of us have some lever we can pull to do something. And every meeting feels very real. I also, I've, I've grown really passionate about the cybersecurity workforce crisis in this country. You know, we have something like hundreds of thousands of unfilled jobs just in government for cybersecurity positions millions more when you look at the private sector. And the government, you can't compete. You just really can't compete because of a number of reasons, large bureaucracy, red tape. By the time federal government gets its act together to make an offer and someone's had all their drug tests and their background checks, they've gotten on average two offers from the private sector, significantly higher salaries. And you know, other governments, they have a huge advantage in this market, which is they can force people to do their work. (laughs) In China, we see a lot of really sophisticated hacks come from not, you know, someone in the PLA anymore, but this sort of loose satellite network of private citizens that get tapped on the shoulder to moonlight in some of these really sensitive government operations. We don't do that here. You know, the NSA or Cyber Command can't tap the guy at Palantir on the shoulder and say, hey, you're coming with us tonight or Google. And and in Russia, it works differently, but similar. You know, they have a very symbiotic relationship with Russian cyber criminals. Yep. So they can sort of direct them towards certain targets. Or we've seen cases like the Yahoo hack where, They say, hey, go have your fun, steal these credentials, sell them on the dark web, make your profit. But if you see an account for someone who works at the State Department or the White House or in the military, hand that over to us. So they have this advantage, essentially, as authoritarian governments that we don't have here in the United States. We're really forced to rely on good old-fashioned recruiting. So one of my sort of secret missions in this role on, on CISA's advisory committee is can we figure out some kind of public-private sector tour of duty where we would get the best and brightest from big tech companies like Apple and Amazon, also cybersecurity companies like Palo Alto Networks, et cetera, to kind of lend the government some of their best and brightest while supplementing their salaries or at least not forcing them to sell their stock for some period of time, say a year, 
and then send them back to the private sector as a liaison. You know, someone that is or almost like the Naval Reserve. You could call yeah. on in the event of some heightened crisis like Ukraine or Taiwan. So it's things like that that I've really started to focus on. And I've learned that the federal government moves at a glacial pace and, you know, that there are challenges when you have big ideas like this. But but for the most part, I think we're all on the same page that it's time for some serious creative thinking. And and this agency, our, our motto is uh, keep CISA weird. We borrowed it from Steve Adler, the mayor of Austin, former mayor of Austin. Uh, we want to really keep this sort of startup sensibility around about us and, and be open to creative thinking and new ideas. And the people are just are my heroes, some of the people who work at this agency. So that's that. <laughs> but it's unpaid. It's a do it for your country kind of thing. I see it as sort of a patriotic duty in a lot of ways. And I just see it as kind of more of you know, you can write about something for 10 years and then what? Are you just going to keep writing about it or are you going to go do something about it? And this is my my way of doing something about it. And then Silver Buckshot is, is another. Well, thank you for your service. Uh, <laughs> it's not that hard. You know, it would be one thing to go work and move to D.C., you know, go do the do nine to six job at, at a federal agency every day. This is really strategic and it's really just an amazing group of people. So it's, it's more like an honor than a duty, but. Well, we're, we're lucky you and your colleagues are, are volunteering and keeping it weird and hopefully, you know, helping us muddle through this craziness. But I want to ask you also about silver buckshot. So we know there's no silver bullet in fighting cyber crime. Tell us about what you're trying to achieve with silver buckshot. It's a cool name. Uh, how'd you come up with the name and maybe tell us about the strategy of the fund and if you have an example or two of how you want to work with companies and uh, add a very unique set of value, we'd love to hear about it. So the name came from a discussion I had with Senator Angus King, who's the independent from Maine. He said, you know, I think it was a hunting buddy in Maine said, okay, you know, he t- Senator King was on the Cyber Solarium Commission. So he's pretty well-versed in cyber and I guess he was explaining the issue to a friend of his back in Maine. And, and the guy said, okay, I get it. There's no silver bullet, but there's a silver buckshot. You know, essentially, <laughs> if we do all of these things, then maybe we stand a fighting chance. And I just love that idea. And I think, frankly, you know, it's it's beyond just the fun, the mission fund I'm trying to create. It's a lot of my education work, too. I always say if cybersecurity was just a technology problem, then we could have figured it out 20 years ago, but we haven't figured it out. It's just kept getting worse. And I think that's because it's not just a technology problem. It's a board leadership problem. It's a resource problem. It's an education problem. It's a culture problem. It's a policy problem, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So my work with CISA is really you know, fighting, fighting that fight on some of those fronts. My speaking is trying to help educate everyone on, on how to raise the bar and how to educate employees on sort of their role in this fight. And then I do think that there are next generation cybersecurity technologies that are coming up now that will significantly move the needle in this war. And I think none of them are going to do everything. You know, the idea that one cybersecurity company is going to be able to tackle every attack vector out there is is just unrealistic. But I think 
there are certain startups that I've seen come up and I live here in Silicon Valley. So I have an amazing opportunity to, to get a front row seat to what some of them are doing. I think some of them really are going to move the needle on specific attack vectors. I think abnormal security is going to significantly raise the bar on phishing, which continues to be the number one vector for attack, business email compromise. We don't talk about it enough because it's has a really unsexy name, (laughs) but it's still, you know, the number one way that attackers get into our networks. And I think that is an example where Google took it as far as they could. You know, they made a huge dent in spam. Google's security team is one of, I think, the best security teams Mm -hmm. out there today. But as far as they took it, they didn't take it far enough because phishing continues to be the number one vector for attack. So Abnormal has taken a very different approach there. I think for ransomware, I think a huge part of ransomware is prevention. So I think, you know, if you can do seamless real-time backups all of the time, maybe you're going to find yourself hit by a ransomware attack, but you're not going to necessarily have to pay the millions of dollars in ransom. And I think Rubrik is doing this beautifully. And it's sort of a just example of a company that will really change the calculus on whether companies decide to pay these ransoms. I think blockchain and cryptocurrency has just been a huge enabler for ransomware groups. Mm. So there's a company I started working with named uh, TRM Labs that uh, track the flow of funds along the blockchain. And we're partly responsible for helping the FBI claw back Uh, the ransom paid in the colonial pipeline uh, debacle. So those are just a couple examples. There's one I know you you are an investor in, Glenn, uh, Dscope. And, you know, their ambition is very lofty, which is let's kill the password, password once and for all. But for now, let's just make it really easy for companies to do all kinds of multi-factor authentication with three lines of code. Mm -hmm. And if we can just get everyone to use multi-factor authentication, we will be in a much better position with these phishing attacks, which, as I said, is the number one vector for attack. So each of these companies, I think, together collectively could be the silver buckshot. And some of the people, you know, my, my filter is, do they actually solve this problem? <laughs> and the second is, are they people with integrity? Are they nice people? I have sort of a no assholes policy. And so I only work with people who are actually determined to fix this problem once and for all and people who have high integrity. And despite, I think, the media's perception of venture capital, especially maybe recently with the Silicon Valley bank crisis, I think there are a lot of really amazing heroes working in this space. And so I started working with them in an advisory capacity. And then at a certain point, I said, why don't I put together, I'll call it a mission fund, because I think impact investing is, is overused, but this is me on my mission. <laughs> and I think these companies are going to be core to that mission. So that's how it all came together. But, but it's just been wonderful going inside the tent with these people and seeing what their te- technology can do. And in terms of what I can do for them, it's really about amplifying and bringing them to the attention of, say, Fortune 100 companies that I'm speaking to anyway. And it's been really, really rewarding. I'm super excited to see you know, how you build out your portfolio and how wide a, a purview the buckshot extends. But I, I suspect just knowing what I know about the companies you've already allied with, you're on your way. 
and uh, I'm really excited to see how it how it all pans out. But I I think it's uh, very very exciting, and I'm glad you're you're so engaged by it. So, Nicole, we're at that time in the, in the episode where I get to put you on the hot seat. Okay. Ask you ask you just a couple questions. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. First off, other than your own book, what book or article? that you've read recently, would you recommend to people who are curious about cybersecurity and wanting to know, learn more? Okay. So and by the way, your book should be first on anybody's list but after <laughs> thank that. You. Okay. So I had an answer to this question and then my pregnancy brain got in the way. So I, I am now trying to frantically remember what, what my list was, but one that I always recommend, and it's not a cybersecurity book, but it's Red Notice by Bill Browder. It's just you know, for those who haven't read it, it's just, it's, it's, you can read it in a day. It's so suspenseful. Bill Browder was one of the biggest foreign asset holders in Russia. He was a hedge fund founder manager. And one day, you know, Russia or Putin himself decided enough is enough and basically started reassigning all his assets to dead people. And uh, I won't give away the whole story, but he really laid out pretty clearly for me what Putin's Russia looks like and how and how is sort of the, this dark deal that a lot of businesses and oligarchs have made there. And and I first read it, I think I, I closed I read the last page the day before I got the call that the DNC had been hacked by Russia. Oh wow. And so my thinking was was uh you know very interesting at the time. But I would just say that is a really good primer into how Russia thinks strategically about, well, a lot of things. Yeah. So I'd read that. We Are Bellingcat by Elliot Higgins is top of mind right now. Bellingcat uh, features prominently in the Navalny documentary that just won the Oscar for Best Documentary. If you haven't seen it, it's fantastic. And the best part of the whole documentary is when they have someone from Bellingcat and I'm so sorry, I'm blanking on his name right now. I I should really look it up for this. But he is on site with Navalny and one of Navalny's colleagues, and he has helped out using open source intelligence, the people who actually poisoned Navalny in Russia with Novichok. And they start prank calling some of these uh, FSB members. And eventually they call one of the scientists who was involved and pretend they pretend to be a bureaucrat and say, you know, I need you to answer th these questions for the next 10 minutes. And uh, essentially the guy completely confesses <laughs> yep. to the fact that he was part of this poisoning. So We Are Bellingcat is just a fantastic look at the origin story of what you can do with open source intelligence and how they've been, been able to out the perpetrators behind some of these attacks. The Perfect Weapon by David Sanger covers a lot about Stuxnet and its aftermath and covers a lot of the reporting that the two of us did together. And then Sandworm by Andy Greenberg is terrific. And his latest book, I think it's called Tracers in the Dark. Don't trust my pregnancy brain one. again. But it is about companies like TRM Labs and Chainalysis that have really figured out how to use the blockchain against cyber criminals. And that technology is just coming online. And so I'm really excited to see what it can do, particularly against ransomware. But that book is it's just a very well-written, uh, suspenseful, human-driven tale about how 
that technology came to be and the people inside the IRS at the time Mm. who basically created this pilot program to see what they could do if they started tracking the flow of these funds. So those, those are just a a couple. Bonus. So you gave us five titles, I think. Okay. 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 Sorry. Yes. And by the way, I've read most of them, all of them, all the ones I've read that you recommended are amazing. Red Notice is probably one of my five. I don't know if I want to say favorite, but my five top books ever. It is an amazing story. I had the chance to meet Josh Browder, who's the son of the author, and um, he's a, an entrepreneur. He started the company Do Not Pay and has, has done very well. But the story is extremely gripping. It's you know has a very sad ending, but it's, it's an incredible book and one that I highly, highly recommend. And the Navalny documentary is available online. I have it on my iPad and uh, haven't yet watched all the way through, but it's also fascinating. And What so- did Josh say about his dad taking on this fight? Because honestly, you know, I could tell it was not a topic he was excited to delve okay. too deeply into. I think it's been very painful for their family. Yeah. And so I, I didn't get much out of him on it. Yeah. He does have a sequel which I listened to on, on audiobook where he gets into a little bit. Bill Browder does on Red Notice. Yeah. It's called, what's it? Do you remember what it's called? Red? Freezing order. Freezing order. Freezing order. I'm going to keep you on the hot seat. Okay. What advice would you give to a younger Nicole? Okay. I would just say (laughs) it's going to be all right. You know, there were a lot of people when I, I went to Princeton, I came out the year that year, everyone was going into iBanking or working at McKinsey or uh, BCG. You know, they were just taking these jobs and consulting, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I wasn't making nearly as much money as they were. I was barely breaking even every month. And looking back, I wish I could just go back and say it's going to be all right. And actually, I'm really grateful that I floundered for those first couple of years and asked myself really hard questions about what do you want your life to look like in 20 years? And what is it? Do you, do you want some greater purpose mm-hmm. or not? Because now I don't have to ask myself those questions now because I asked them when I was broke, you know, living paycheck to paycheck in my twenties. And, and then my, my friends who um, went into iBanking are now calling me up saying, do you think it'd be hard for me to get into journalism? And <laughs> <laughs> so I would say, just keep going, you know, just keep going. And um, again, I, you know, I didn't, if you'd asked me when I was 22, do you see yourself in a career in cybersecurity? I would have laughed, but sometimes the mission finds you and you just have to be open to it and then work your butt off until you understand what the hell is going on. (laughs) So yeah, just, it's going to be all right. Sometimes the mission chooses you. Sometimes you choose the mission. As you Mm -hmm. said earlier, it's kind of like uh, Harry Potter, you know, it's not the wizard that chooses the wand. It's the wand that chooses the wizard. Yes. Uh, Yes. Okay. Last question for you. If you weren't covering cybersecurity or if you hadn't covered it, what beat would you have wanted to cover? Okay. The chocolate beat. This is going to sound so weird. I did this little story on Jacques Torres, who's the chocolatier who lives in New York. And I did it for Forbes magazine. I wrote a pro- profile of him. I d- no one read it. It was, it was only like 200 words. But 
in the course of doing this 200 word short little profile Jacques Tours, I learned about just these chocolate wars that go on. You know, there are things like there's this one bean in Venezuela in this one place. And if you can get the rights to that bean, you are considered, you know, you're going to win all sorts of awards. And there were just all sorts of games that were played where, you know, some companies would go in and they would say, how much do we have to pay you to work with us versus that other company? And they would say, well, we actually just want health insurance and new baseball uniforms. And that would be all it took for them to basically swipe the right <laughs> of this bean away from some other chocolate company. So I always said, you know, the time should have a chocolate reporter because uh, I think they would dig up some fascinating stories. Plus, you'd get to eat and travel well. Well, that does sound like fun, but I am glad. <laughs> for the, I'm glad for the world that you got stuck with cybersecurity, that cybersecurity chose you. I know that I feel way more informed and, uh, you know, have a lot more context that I would have otherwise. And I know I'm not the only one, thanks to all your amazing reporting and writing over the years. And very excited now for you with Silver Buckshot. Um, really look forward to collaborating and look forward to, to the success I know you're going to have with it. Thanks so much, Nicole, for joining us today. It's been great learning from you. And I know people are going to love this episode. Thank you so much, Glenn. It's always fun to talk to you and we'll be in touch. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Our theme music is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across social internet, enterprise tech, and smart tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages 9.2 billion in capital across the US, Canada, China, Southeast Asia, India, Latin America, and Israel. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Big Commerce, Grab, HashiCorp, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, Zendesk, and many more. The firm has offices in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, Singapore, Shanghai, and Beijing. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at at GGV Capital.